Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2, um, is where we'll be starting. First of all, y'all turn there. I want to thank Pastor for the opportunity to be able to preach. Um, I never take it lightly, um, especially for how very rare I do it, but uh, when I get up here, whenever I first started preaching, Pastor would always tell me, whenever you get up there and preach, don't. Don't ever take it lightly. It's always a privilege and all that stuff. And back then, whenever I was sitting down, I'd always be focused on, uh, oh, man, I'm so nervous. I don't want to get up there and all that. And sometimes I would regret it. But the more I did it, the more I started realizing that pastor's right. Don't take it for granted because whenever you get behind here to preach or to sing, you're proclaiming God's goodness or the word of God. And so I've learned not to take it lightly. But... Of course, pray for Pastor and the staff as they're out in California that uh, they'll be encouraged and uh, pray for safety as they travel back tomorrow. But Matthew chapter 2 is where we'll be, starting in verse 1. And it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born, king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes and the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. I had a message prepared, and it was supposed to start in a different passage, which I was sitting there thinking, and my mom was like, Oh, Jared, do you remember whenever you preached this sermon? Jared, do you remember whenever you preached that sermon? And I was like, yeah, I remember that. And I, I'll, every time I look back, I would be like, man, that was just a bad sermon. Like, I wasn't prepared for it at all. And she started reading the points that she put down in it. And whenever I was reading this, I didn't realize I even wrote this, but I said there's people in this passage that had a passion. Sometimes, everybody has a passion. Sometimes it, not everybody's passion is the same. I have passions my parents have passions. My dad's passions are very different from mine. 
But some, in all Christians, we should all have one passion that should be the same. And in this passage, there's three people or two people and a group of people that have a passion. The first people that I want to point out is the passion of the wise men. The passion of the wise men. If you look in verse 10, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And I was sitting there reading it. I thought to myself, I was a couple weeks ago sitting or laying somewhere, and I saw a shooting star go across the sky. I was like, oh, wow, that's cool. I get to make a wish and all that, and I thought about it. And then I thought to myself, wait. So the Bible tells me that the wise men saw a star, and they started rejoicing and giving praise to God. And I see stars every day, every single night that I go out. I look up in the sky and I see a star and I'm like, oh, that's cool how God created that. But I never rejoice to see it. But I've got to thinking about it that whenever they saw the star, it wasn't just any ordinary star. This star led to the hope of Israel. This star led to the new chapter for Israel. This star led to joy. This star shined down on Jesus, the hope for the whole world, the sacrifice that had to be given for us to be pardoned from our sin. So when they saw this star, they realized what the star was, and they weren't weren't praising the star. They weren't praising what it meant. They were praising the one who put the star there, which was God. And they followed. They followed the star. So they rejoiced seeing a star, but not only did they rejoice, they humbled themselves. Look at verse 11. It says, And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down. (laughs) I think to myself sometimes that my brother and I are the same age. He's a little bit older than me. I think about how Joseph, whenever in the Old Testament, he said all his older brothers were going to bow down to him. And then I thought to myself, you know how cool that would be for Jonathan to bow down to me as I'm his younger brother? (laughs) But that would be humbling for Jonathan. It would be weird for me. But what I thought about here was in verse 11, these wise men, these men who were so wise, who knew more than everybody else in the kingdom, these men who had knowledge of things that most people, most normal people wanted, they came into a house and they saw a young child. Now, I don't know if he was, he wasn't a teenager, he was just a young child. I don't know if he was a baby or if he was just a little bit older, but they came to him and they fell down to a young child. These wise men who knew everything, who could have said, why would I fall down to this little child? But what is he? But they, were, they knew that they weren't just bowing down to any young child. They were bowing down to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who came robed in flesh for a purpose. So you see the passion, how they showed their passion was by rejoicing when they saw the star, by humbling themselves to a child, and then by worshiping him. The next three words in verse 11 says, and worshiped him. They worshiped the young child. 
like I said, they weren't worshiping just any child. They were worshiping Christ the King. And another way they showed it, there's a warning in verse 12 given by God in a dream. It says, And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. In the passage, just a few verses below, above, Jesus or Herod told the wise men, that he said, come back to me. Whenever you found the child, come back to me and so I can worship him also. Now, we all know after reading this passage multiple times, after hearing about it and all that stuff, that Herod truly didn't want to come and worship Jesus or the baby. What I thought was amazing is in verse 12 it says, And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod. And it says they departed into their own country another way. And sometimes in our lives we'll we'll be walking down this road and somebody will say, Hey, can you do this? And then we say, Oh yeah, that it seems something good. But whenever we get there and God says, Hey, I don't want you to do that. It's amazing that God says he doesn't want to do that, and it's hard for us to trust him. It's hard for us to obey him. But the wise men obeyed him, and it says that they somehow, they got back to their own country another way. And whenever you're in the, whenever God asks you to do something, whenever, whenever God says, I need you to go this way, and you say, God, I don't see how you're going to get me through it, I can promise you this, he's made another way for you to get there. So God gave a warning and the wise men obeyed it. And this right now is just the introduction to let you know. Um, So then you have the passion of Herod. Passion had a strong, or Herod had a strong passion. Very strong passion. So much so that if you're a king or you're ruling over something and a couple of men came into your, where you're ruling and said, hey, there's this person who was just born over here in this other place, and he's going to rule over you whenever he gets older. It's kind of like a threat to you. You're like, huh, uh, no, he's not. I'm going to make sure he doesn't. And it, it says what Herod, Herod was doing in verse 3. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was troubled whenever he got this news. He, I could see Herod sitting on his throne I don't know if he had a beard. That'd just be weird. But I don't know what Herod was doing, but he was troubled whenever he heard this, that another person was coming to take his kingdom from him. And I know whenever you're troubled by something, whenever you are thinking about something and you're saying, what, what am I going to do? Well, Herod wanted to figure out a way to make sure that this didn't happen. And whenever you start doing things, a lot of people start becoming demanding. They start telling people what to do. They're still saying, hey, I need this. I want that. You do this. You do that. And that's exactly, as Herod was human, did the same thing. Verse 4, it says, And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And from what Herod's known for, I don't think Herod was like, hey, scribes, Pharisees, can you please tell me where Jesus is going to be born? Please, I'm just asking you. No, he, he looked at him and said, tell me where Jesus is going to be born because I have plans to do something with it. He was troubled and he started demanding. 
And Herod told them, he started lying to them. He lied and deceived the wise men and said, whenever you get news where Jesus is, I want you to come back and tell me where he is so I can come worship him also. But we know Herod didn't want to do that. In verse 13, this is where the angel appears to Joseph, but the angel gives what Herod's intentions were. It says, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. It's amazing how the most powerful person in all of Israel had every resource in the kingdom at his hand, and yet a little child was able to get away. Why? Because Herod had all the resources in the kingdom, but God has all the resources in the world to save him. And God knew that Herod had intentions to kill, to destroy, to take Jesus out. But we can't, we can't fight God's will. And God's will was for Jesus to come. So you have passion of the wise man and you have passion of Herod. And there's one more person, but he, they don't, he doesn't give his passion in the scripture. But Jesus, he had a passion. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 is where it gives Jesus passion. Luke chapter 19, if I can get there, verse 10. Here, Jesus is talking, and he tells what he's come to do. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, and it says, For the Son of Man, which is Jesus, is come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Jesus says, All that's happened, I've come to seek and to save those who were lost. Who's that? Who are the people who are lost? Well, in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. For there is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Those verses let us know that those who are lost are us. And God's passion, or Jesus' passion said, he said, I've come to seek and to save you. Those who are lost, that's us. How did Jesus show his passion? Luke chapter 22. Literally just a couple chapters over. Luke chapter 22. This is where Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. And he shows his passion. He, he, comes, he brings the disciples into the garden of Gethsemane. And he says, hey, y'all stay right here. I'm just going to go right over there. And I'm going to pray. And while, it, while I'm praying, I want you guys to pray with me and for me. Starting in verse, we'll say, verse 39, it says, And he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was in the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, Why sleep ye? 
Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. So here in verse 44, 43 and 44, it says, Jesus was praying so earnestly that he was weak. And so an angel had to come and strengthen him. But yet it says that he, after he was strengthened, he kept praying even more, so much more that his sweat was as if it were great drops of blood. <laughs> and I think to myself, I'm like, I've never prayed that hard before where I'm sweating blood. If I was, then something's got to be wrong. But it's amazing to see that Jesus had so much passion for what he was doing that he prayed and he was asking God. He said, God, if this be your will, let this cup pass from me. And yet he was so passionate about it. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So you have the passion of the wise men. You have the passion of Herod. And you have the passion of Jesus. Now, we're done with that part of the sermon. So you have these passions of Jesus, the wise men, and Herod. And the thing is, like I said, everybody has a passion. And the church of Ephesus had a passion. The churches everywhere had a passion. Revelation chapter 2 is where our main text will be. Here, the uh, God speaking... He's talking to the church of Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus, if you look in the verses before, verse 1 is where we'll be reading. It says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. This is Jesus talking. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. So Jesus, God's looking at them and saying, Hey, church of Ephesus, Good job. I know what you're going through. I know how hard it can be. I know that these people are coming along trying to deceive you, but you guys are doing a good job of finding them liars and not letting them in. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. I know the amount of work you're putting into it. I know the amount of time you're putting into it. And he's telling them good job, but then in verse 4 he says this, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. So he tells the church of Ephesus, who's doing this great work, good job. He says, you're, you're doing a good thing there. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. So God says, there's something that's wrong. What is it that we did wrong? He says, because thou hast left thy first love. And... I was thinking about this. My mom shared it with me, and I was like, left thy first love. And I was like, oh, of course. Yeah, of course, our parents could be our first love, if you think about it. Um, you were born, and who is the first person to love you? Your parents are. Well, what about a relationship besides your parents? Oh, then it can be your grandparents or friends who love you. That's, that's who your first love is. But then I started remembering other verses and thinking about other verses, 
In 1 John uh, chapter 4 is where it tells us. First John chapter 4 and verse 19 tells us exactly who our first love is. It says, we love him because he first loved us. We love him because he first loved us. So that means God was in the beginning, and then just a few verses before that verse, it says God is love, God's in the beginning, then he is love, which means he knows us and he knew before we were created and loved us before we were created, which means God is our first love. And I, whenever I was practicing, practicing this, I said, oh, so God's our first love, and that's why we love him. And then my mom was like, no, that's no. And I was like sitting there, and I started thinking about it. And I thought this was so amazing. It's so powerful, the thought that God back then loved us Yet when we were born, the true fact is that we're born into sin and that God, when we're born, we don't love him. So yet these wicked sinners who are born into this world, born sinners who spit in his face, who reject him, which is our first point, the rejection, he still loved us. And the church of Ephesus in Revelation, he says, Thou hast left thy first love. If God's our first love, that means they rejected him. They're doing these great, this great work, but you've rejected me over the great work. So you have the rejection. Take your Bible, turn to Matthew. Matthew, there's a lot of flipping through the scriptures tonight. Matthew chapter 27 is where we'll we'll find ourselves for this moment. Here, Matthew chapter 27, Jesus had just been captured. Jesus uh, had told Peter that he's going to deny him. And now he's standing before the people with Barabbas on one side and him on the other. And it says in verse 15, Now at the feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner, whom they would. And they had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Whom will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ, which he knew that for envy they had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife sent unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with that just man? For I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and others persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you? They said, Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They all say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather a tumult was made, he took 
water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and our children. I had, I had a certain point that I was going to make, how the people wanted to destroy Jesus. But that last verse that I just read, I thought about it. It says, Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and our children. I got to thinking about this. I said, So you're telling me that these, these people were in their voting on who they wanted to release, Barabbas or Jesus, and they chose Barabbas to be released. And then the, he said, well, why, what evil hath he done? Why, why should we crucify him? And he said, it's, it's y'all's fault now. I'm, I'm not doing it. So he washed his hands in public saying, this, y'all see me doing this, so it's, your, his blood's not on my hand. And they willingly had so much passion behind them that they said, let his blood be on us. And this is where it got me. And our children, the people, the kids who had no right in voting who was crucified. They were willing to take the blood of Jesus in a negative manner and put it on him. See, what they didn't realize is that Jesus was already there so that way he could put his blood on our account, but they wanted it in a way to make sure that Jesus was dead. And they said, let his blood be on us and our children. And I thought about this. I said, what if my dad was in voting something and they, you had to kill one person out of two and you had to choose two people? And they said, okay, this guy who's done so many wrong things, we're going to release him to the people. And this guy who's done absolutely nothing wrong we're going to kill him. And my dad said, you know what? Just to make sure that is done, I'm going to, I'll take his blood on me, my account, and then I'll also put on Jared's account to make sure that he's dead. I mean, that's kind of like, wow, dad, really? No, he didn't do that, but. It's the thought that they had so much passion behind wanting to kill Jesus that they're willing to put his blood on their children's account. There's a story. It's about a hundred Roman soldiers. And there's this empire on the side of a mountain. And it's it's a small empire, but they weren't doing good and they they sent Roman soldiers, a hundred Roman soldiers over there to run the empire, pretty much. And it was cold there. It was it was on a snow capped mountain. They were freezing. It was always snow on the ground. And they were always bundled up in clothing to stay warm. And these hundred Roman soldiers would always walk around. And the general of those hundred Roman soldiers walked up to the emperor of that empire and said, Emperor, you can have whatever you want. We'll do it for you. And I could see the emperor sitting there thinking to himself for about, I don't know, ten seconds. And he, he looked at the general and he said, how about you get everybody in the empire to bow down to me, including the Roman soldiers? And so he stood in front of all the people, and he, all the people bowed down. He said, I want all the men, all the women, all the children, and all your Roman soldiers to bow down to me. And so all the men, women, and children bowed down, and only 60 of the men of the Roman soldiers bowed down. Forty of them stood there. 
And the, em- the emperor saw this and asked the general, he said, why aren't your men bowing down? And he went to go ask him, he said, why aren't you bowing down to the uh, emperor? And he's the, one of the men stood up to the general and said, we cannot bow down to a man who wants us to think that he's a god because we know the one true and living god. The emperor was furious. He, he wanted to have the worst punishment done to them. So he got to thinking, he said, what's the worst punishment? Can we cast him in the lines then? He said, how about we burn him at the stake? How about we beat him? And they're like, no, that's not the worst punishment. The worst punishment you can do is to send him out to that one lake. So the emperor said, yep, that's what we're going to do. We're going to send those 40 men out to the lake. So they sent all 100 men out to the lake and took those 40. And the general said, strip them of all their clothes. So the men are out there standing, shivering, cold. Their feet probably getting numb from walking on the lake. And the the general looked at him and said, you know, if you just bow down to the emperor, you can get your clothes back, you can come to the fire, you can start eating, you can go back to your normal life if you just bow down. After a couple hours, one of the Roman soldiers of the 40 said, I give up, I, I, I just can't deal with this anymore. Went on, got his clothes, got to the fire and warmed up. So now there's 39 Roman soldiers over there freezing while 61 of them are over there staying warm by the fire. And one of the Roman soldiers of the 61 was standing there and said, how can these 39 men stand there with so much passion behind what they do, with so much courage and not turn back and just bow down to the emperor? I mean, how hard can it be you just bow down? But they had something that was actually real. And he looked at him and said, you know what? I can't stand here anymore and watch these men with something that they can hold on to for hope. I'm going to take that hope. So he stripped himself of his own clothes, walked over to the 39 Roman soldiers. Now you have 40 Roman soldiers over here, and you have 60 again, but two men swapped places. The Roman soldiers thought to themselves, well, why don't we just start cooking some food just to tempt the other 40 Roman soldiers so that maybe they'll come back and actually bow down and see what they do. They started cooking food. They started eating. You heard them laughing while they're over there just standing and freezing. Well, none of the men kept moving, so finally the 60 Roman soldiers decided to go to sleep. And they woke up the next morning, and they're all getting their stuff ready. And one of them looked over and saw 40 Roman soldiers just frozen to death across the lake. And that thought to me, we sit here and say, Peter even did it. He said, I'll go to death for you, Christ. I'll go to the cross for you. I'll, I'll die for you, Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, no, you're going to deny me, Jesus, Peter. And the 40 Roman soldiers died that day. But the thing is, the other 60 Roman soldiers didn't realize that the other 40 who were dying, they were giving up all their temporary things for something eternal, while the other 60 were holding on to their temporary and wasting their eternal. The 60 rejected 
the 40 held on and said, no, I'm going to love my first love. I'm not going to forget what he's done for me. The good thing about Revelation chapter 2 is that Jesus said you've left your first love, which you could have. I've done it. Everybody's done it. The good thing about this passage is that God gives a way back to not rejecting him. Verse 5, the first word gives the first thing that you ought to do. It says, Nevertheless, I have someone against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Verse 5 says this, Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen. Remember. So you have the rejection of your first love, and then you have the remembering. You have the remembering. Psalms chapter 78, which is Psalm 78 is where the passage that talks about the children of Israel look at God and say, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Which he can. God proved that to them. Psalm 78, verse 29 says this, So they did eat and were well filled. For he gave them their own desire. They were not estranged from their lust, but while their meat was yet in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. For all this they sinned still and believed not for his wondrous works. Therefore their days did he consume in vanity and their years in trouble. When he slew them, then they sought him and and they returned and inquired early after God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the high God their redeemer. So God slew the fattest of them and he, he was sitting there and they finally came to themselves and they said, we, we remember God's goodness in our lives. We remember it. But the saddest verse of this whole passage is verse 36. It says, nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth and they, did, they lied unto him. With their tongues. So they remembered and they told God all these things. The saddest part is they didn't mean a single bit of it. They were just saying it almost just to get God off their back. They're almost trying to tell God, just leave us alone. We'll just we'll come back whenever we've sinned enough and we feel bad for what we've done, then we'll ask for your repentance and we'll remember for the short period of time and then we'll go back to our sin. Verse 37 says this, For their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. Verse 38 is the most cheerful verse probably of this old passage. It says, But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath. Here you have God's remembrance. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. So God was there, and they turned to him, and they said, sorry, God, for all that we've done. We don't mean this, but we're just doing it to get off your back, or you get off our, our back. 
And God was standing there and he said, you know what? I understand. I remember. You're flesh. You're going to mess up. You're going to do things wrong. I'm not going to stir up all my wrath against you. I'm not going to punish you as hard. I'm not going to do all these things because I know that sometimes you're going to mess up. He remembered that we're just a wind that passed away. Or as in James, a vapor that appeared for a little time. And cometh not again. Verse 40 says, How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? So God remembered that they were but flesh. And it says, How many times did they provoke him? How many times did they grieve him? How many times did they turn him away? And it says, Verse 1, Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. Verse 42 said this, They remembered not his hand, nor the day when he delivered them from the enemy. So, reading this passage, you have that they, they remembered God and that he was the great almighty God. And they repented to God. And then it says, nevertheless, they didn't mean it. God's all-knowing, so you can't deceive God. So God knew that they didn't mean it. And so he was like, you know what? I remember that you're but flesh. I remember that you're going to mess up. I remember all these things. So he forgave them of their sin. And then it goes back to remind us. It says, how many times did the children of Israel in the wilderness grieve me? How many times did they tempt me? How many times did they stir up my anger? And then it says, they remember not his hand. And we look at Israel. They remember not his hand. Meaning that when he led them out of Egypt, whenever he saved them, saved them from bondage, he, he was sitting there and he said, they didn't remember it. And we look at Ezra and we're like, how in the world can you forget what God has done for you? I mean, you're, you're about to die. The Egyptians were coming for you and you took a step into the water and the water just parted. How can you forget that? But I'm sure people like Moses and Abraham and uh, Joshua are looking at us and say, how can you forget what God's done for you? He saved your soul from hell and he gave you the Holy Spirit. And after all that you've still done, he still loved you enough to forgive you and give you another day to live. And it's we harp so much on the children of Israel and Peter and all these people. But at the same time, if you turn around and look at your own life, it's the same life that they were doing. So you have the remembering. You have the people's forgetting. There's a story. There's a story that's out there about this this young guy, he, I don't know his name. There's this young guy who was out there. And his dad said, what do you want for your graduation present? And uh, the son looked at him and he said, you know, you know what I want to do most? I want to go and travel Europe. I want to go see the great wonders of Europe. I want to go look at nature. I want to go to the museums. I want to go to the national parks. I want to go and see all these things. And his father not having any financial struggles, looked at him and said, you know what? For your graduation birthday, you're going to get that. So he looked at, he went and got it all scheduled out 
and so now the son, when he graduated, was set to go travel Europe. And he went to go look at nature, and he drew pictures, he wrote notes, he did all these things, and he was walking through this art museum, this great art museum that had been made by people way back then. He was like, wow, this is so cool. And he was in awe of it. Then he came to this one painting, and he he said, it caught my eye, it caught his eye. He came to it, and it showed a picture of a man. He was bent down on one knee, and you could see his muscles straining as he had a crown of thorns put on his head and blood was just running down his face. The cross heavy on his back and he's sitting there struggling and he looked down at the bottom of the painting had inscripted, this is what I've done for thee. What have you done for me? And the thought that Christ the one who could have just wiped us out and started all over, the one that remembers that we're but flesh, the one that remembers all these things and yet forgives us so many times, he came to this earth to die on a cross for all of our sins. And he, this painting says, this is what I've done for thee. What have you done for me? The thought that this, that's what God did for us. So what have we done for him? So many times we reject our first love. We reject God in so many areas of our lives. For me, it could sometimes be school. I normally think, oh, I don't need help in school, but (laughs) the thought, why don't I go to the one who knows all things to give me the answers? But He's so good to us, we reject him, and he... That painting, I could just see him there struggling and him just look over to the side. If I were standing there in the crowd watching this and him just say, this is what I've done for thee. What have you done for me? We forget so many times the agony and the pain and the struggles that Jesus went through just for us. Revelation chapter 2. There's last two words. Is the final step if you rejected your first love. It says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen. And the last two words says, and repent. And repent. Repenting is walking towards sin, being convicted, and taking a complete 180 and walking away from it. But so many times, we're like Lot's wife and we do something like this and just keep looking at it. Wondering, you know, I wonder when I'm going to come back to that. If this whole God thing doesn't go well for me, I'll go back to that. Or sometimes we just get mad at a situation that's in our life and we throw a little temper tantrum and say, you know what, God, forget you. I'm going to go over back to the sin. And that's exactly what Satan wants for us. He wants us to go back to the sin because he makes it look good. He goes, oh, look what, how much fun this person's having. You could do all these things, but 
I've messed up a lot in my life, like a whole lot. And I think to myself, how can I think of what God's done for me and then yet look back on sin, wondering, I wonder when I'm going to come back, wondering, I wonder if that'll still be there whenever I get done. Or can we have Christians, which I need to work on this too, who just say, you know what, forget you, I'm going to throw you in the trash, and then I'm going to take you out to the dumpster and let the dump truck come by and take you to the dump so I never go back to you. Horrible illustration to let you know. Um, and just go for God fully. Not wondering, not wondering whenever we come into a situation, God, how are you going to get me through this? But like the wise men who had so much passion, they said, go another way. And we don't know another way that God can make. But yet we just put our trust and faith in God just to take the next step that God wants us. We repent. How do you repent? Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says this. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and forgive their sin, and heal their land. There, my dad's always taught me this, and sometimes it can get annoying whenever he says the same phrase over and over and over and over, but for some reason, it's still truth, and it's right. But he says, actions speak louder than words. And I've come to realize whenever I was younger, he would always say, I would say, oh, I love you, Dad. And then he'd be like, actions speak louder than words. And I'd be like, oh, why does he have to say that? But it came to the thought that if I truly love my parents, what am I going to do in my actions to show that I love them? God said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So how do we show our love to Christ? Well, we keep his commandments. If our actions speak louder than words, if we truly want to repent, then actions will come out of what if we're truly repentant. And it says here in Second Chronicles, it says, If my people, if you're truly repentant, if you humble yourself and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, then, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal your land. So it's a... He's also said actions always have a result behind them. If they're good, then you have good results. If you have bad actions, then you have bad results. If you sin, there's punishment. If you do good, there might be a reward. If you do what's right, then you know that nothing is coming to you that is going to harm you or hurt you or make you regret what you did. If you do what's wrong, then you're going to have punishment coming your way and my mom's also always said this, man. I, right now I'm just realizing how right my parents are. Um, mom's also said this, you know, when you do something wrong and they don't know about it or my brother doesn't know about it and nobody in the world knows about it, my mom's always said this, you could be telling a lie. I don't know if you're telling a lie. You could be telling the truth. I don't know. But if you've done something wrong, let you know. You don't have your parents' wrath. You have God's wrath because God knows everything and God's going to punish you for it. And I've experienced God's wrath. Very humiliating. 
I'd rather experience my parents' wrath than God's wrath. But actions have a result. There's a preacher who told this story. He said he would always preach, and after he got done preaching, he would have this one guy come down to the altar and pray, and he would always sit there like this and listen to the guy's prayer while everybody else was praying. And you'd always hear somewhere in his prayer, he'd be like, God, just take away the spider webs. Just take away the spider webs out of my heart. He'd preach the next sermon. He'd, the same guy would come down and say, God, take the spider webs out of my heart. And finally, after a little while, the preacher said, you know, I'm just going to go down and pray with this guy. So he came down there, put his arm around him and said, what's troubling you? He goes, I just want the spider webs to get out of my heart. And uh, so the guy prayed and said, Lord, you take the spider webs out of my heart. The preacher got his turn to pray. He goes, Lord, don't get rid of the spider webs. Just kill the spider. And sometimes we ask God, God, get rid of this sin. God, get rid of that sin. Why not just go to the root of the matter? Why not just go to the core of the matter and just say, kill it right there? The application of this whole thing, I preached in the beginning about passion of the people. And then I talked about rejecting your first love. And so the whole end of this thing was you have a passion and your actions have a result from it. So what is your passion and the actions that you're taking pointing to what your passion is? And if it's not pointing to your first love, then sad to say, but you've rejected your first love. We've got passions about so many things. Money, cars, phones, jobs. Sometimes you can even be passionate about serving in the church. But what is your passion pointing towards? Is it pointing towards yourself? Is it pointing towards others? Or is it pointing towards God? We'll end in a word of prayer and then... um,